you would turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning, focus our minds on you. There are many things which would distract us, but we want to give you our undivided attention. Pray that your word would be made clear to each one of us, strengthen us to speak and to listen and to respond with faith. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> My family and I were returning from a trip to uh, Greenville, South Carolina recently to see family. We were going from Greenville, if you're familiar with the area, back up towards Charlotte. And on that one-hour stretch on I-85 between oh, Greenville and Gaffney, I was struck by how many billboards were emblazoned with faces of lawyers. And if you've driven the stretch of road recently, I think you know what I'm talking about. I started counting at some point, and I don't remember the exact number, but it was in the multiples of dozens in, I don't know how many miles that would be, but it was about an hour of driving, so maybe 60 miles. Uh, usually the same few, five or six, but different uh, depictions of their trustworthiness. I remember one, it was a man who in his old age, actually, uh, I thought he looked a little bit like John MacArthur, but in his old age, um, he, he was there as the lawyer in his suit, but he also had a picture of uh, himself as a young soldier. And he was a, a good American. He was a veteran and he was going to be your lawyer. And it's not that different from what we have up here. I'm not really intending to give uh, free airtime to the lawyers up here, but if I say, this, you know which billboard I'm talking about. Or if you look at the local bus stations, and I, if I were to say, if you are you hurt in a car, call, you would say, you would say the, the numbers. Okay. Many people want our confidence. Lawyers are just one of them. <clears throat> but we need to be careful to put our confidence in the right place, don't we? We want to know we're engaging a lawyer. We want to know that our lawyer is trustworthy, that they have the qualifications, and there are many ways that th this works itself out in life. <clears throat> On the letter of 1 Thessalonians, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes back to the church at Thessalonica, as recorded for us in Acts uh, chapter 17. Paul spent only a short time there in the city of Thessalonica in Asian, Asia Minor, just long enough to see a number of folks there in that city converted to form into a church. But then just as soon as he was getting into some of the, the thick of discipling them and establishing them as a church, he was opposed and run out of town by unbelieving Jews who hated the gospel, who hated Paul, hated his message. So Paul left under the threat of his life. But while Paul could leave, you can imagine, like it would be with us, many of them couldn't leave. They couldn't leave their hometown. They couldn't leave their families. They couldn't leave their businesses. And while they stayed, so did the opposition to their faith. For some time, those Jews from Thessalonica actually did chase Paul around. That's when they chased him to the city of Berea, you remember, where the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they actually searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. Because when Paul was preaching the gospel, he's preaching it from this half of the Bible, right? 
they had that much and they're searching the scriptures. Is this true? Is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? And they were more noble than those who didn't search the scriptures, didn't test what Paul says and just hated him for it. But these Christians in the city of Thessalonica felt that opposition. It came back. And you can imagine how this might have worked itself out <clears throat> as maybe their, their trade partners, their, their professional partners are no longer willing to work with them or there's a stigma against them. Oh, you, you adopted the teaching of that visiting teacher, Paul. And you can imagine how the, the personal attacks against that traveling rabbi came as well. Was he a fraud? coming for a short time, peddling ideas like many of the Greek philosophers, and then leaving the people out to dry. You can, you can see how these kinds of things would start to crop up in their minds. Is what we believe really true? Is it worth all of this? Should I stake my life on it? <clears throat> well, Paul turns around and writes probably one of his earliest letters. It's not this way in the order of our Bible, but probably chronologically, this is one of the earliest letters of the New Testament. Paul writing from Corinth, just a few cities away, back to the Jews at Thessalonica, correcting some of these notions and pointing these believers in the right direction. What is that direction? If you've been with us, you don't need to have been, but we've considered throughout the whole letter that that direction for them to keep going on the road, Paul says, that is the path of sanctification. Around here, we have, you know, the Buckeye Trail, the, the is it the, the, the necklace, the emerald necklace trail. Well, this is the, the trail sign. It's sanctification. This is the path to stay on. We could call it spiritual growth, change. The theme of the book, as we've taken it, is this, that God preserves those he calls by sanctification. Paul is writing to people who want to keep the faith how are they going to keep the faith? How are they going to make it all the way? God's going to preserve you because he called you. But how's he going to do it? He's going to do it as he takes you down the road of spiritual growth and change. As Christians, we persevere in the faith as we grow spiritually. It's like, like towering trees. Christians ordinarily grow stable in faith by growing strong in faith. Endurance in Christian living comes by maturity. And you can see this even hinted at the importance of this message for this church in nearly the last verse of the book. 1 Thessalonians 5, 27. One of the things Paul closes his letters with, have you written this at the end of one of your letters? I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. This is important. If you didn't come to church that Sunday, Paul wanted the pastor to go to your house and read it to you. You need to hear this. This is life and death spiritually for you. That's what he's saying. When we're talking about spiritual growth, just by way of introduction, we're talking about changing to be more like Jesus and really God in our character, in our actions, in our thoughts. We are a certain way, but Really, by the pattern of our lives, it's, it's a, a way of sin, and it needs to change, and it needs to kind of progressively change over time and increasingly change over time. If you were in a, in a Bible class, the term you might hear is progressive 
sanctification. That's the idea of what we're talking about. You're becoming more like Jesus and how you think and how you act. So for instance, maybe you want to serve more at home or give more at church, but you're so busy. You never feel like you have time for others or, or you're so strapped financially and you see all your needs. You're consumed with all your own business. Maybe, maybe that kind of thing needs to change in your life over time. God wants to make you more humble and God wants to help you serve others more and think of others' needs more. Maybe you're fearful about the future. What will happen to my kids if? What will happen to my family if this? Or what will what, happen to my retirement plan if this? Paul is prescribing in this letter several of these kinds of steps for growth, several ways that the, that the church needs to be mature and growing. He talks about moral purity, that you abstain from sexual immorality. If you're engaging in sexual immorality, it's going to undermine your faith. It's like rot at the roots of the tree. It's going to topple your faith. You need to be growing in, in moral purity. You need to be growing in Christian love. He, he commends them for their love. And he says, you don't really need anybody to teach you about this, but keep doing it. You've demonstrated great love for your whole region of churches. You're sacrificial to them. You're ministering to them. You're taking care of the needs of Christian brother. And that's good. Keep it up. Because if you don't, you're only thinking about yourself. And that's going to ruin your faith. When opposition comes, you're going to be a weak tree. You're going to be blown over. And then he actually highlights couple key relationships within the church, and we wouldn't necessarily expect this, but he talks about your relationship with your pastor. You see there back a few verses, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And then he turns from the pastor to the flock itself, not just the shepherd, but the other sheep. We urge you, brethren, how do you deal with people who are needy spiritually? They always, they're the squeaky wheel. They always get the attention. Man, can't they solve their own problems? Have you ever thought that? But what does Paul say? Admonish the unruly. This is for everybody, not just the pastor. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Don't take revenge. These are all things that are, that are going to contribute to the weakening of the faith. They're, they're going to be a part of immaturity in your life that leaves you weak. And you can't do any heavy lifting. And of course, you need to be right with God. These are ways that we need to be growing. But all of this, up until this point in the letter, if you're not thinking clearly I think there's good reason to think that Paul knew he needed to clarify this. All of this, it really puts the ball in our court. It puts the responsibility on us to be right. And that's right. We need to feel that responsibility. We need to take responsibility for ourselves. We must be right with God to keep the faith. But here at the close of the letter, in our text for this morning, starting in verse 23, Paul kind of takes one final step and redirects our attention a little bit. 
what he's doing here in his, what we call the benediction, his kind of closing prayer, you could say. As he's putting, he's telling Christians to hope in God for growth. Hope in God. God is the source of spiritual growth. And the reason this is important is because it's it's easy for us, isn't it? It's easy for us to put our confidence in the wrong place. With all of this emphasis on, on us and our responsibility, that is our responsibility. It's easy for us to start thinking that it only depends on us. Or as you do that, maybe you just start to lose hope altogether and you're just giving up on changing at all. We have to have our hope in a sure place if we're going to grow. God is the source of spiritual growth. It's not your willpower. It's not your ability to obey. Oh, that's that's all I have to do. I got that. That's a dangerous place to be as a Christian. But so too is to be despairing. I could never do all that. That's too much to remember. It's too many commands to obey. I just feel like you're adding a burden to me. Paul really lifts that here as he points your attention to God who gives you hope. Paul's example here as he prays is to acknowledge God as the source of growth and to pray for growth because he's the source. The source of our growth and likeness to Jesus Christ is God. He is our confidence for spiritual growth, not ourselves. God is the source of spiritual growth. So pray for growth confidently. We must ask God for growth because he's the only one who can give it. And pray for it with confidence. Let's read this morning. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you. And he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So I want to answer the question this morning. Why should you pray for spiritual growth expecting God to answer with a yes? Why should you pray that way? I believe this passage shows three ways that God reveals himself in relation to this growth process that really should give us confidence in prayer. So first, when you're praying for growth, when you're looking for growth, remember, you're praying to the God who's going to finish the job. He will finish the job. Look in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. You get a sense that this is already happening. He's emphasizing God certainly as the source, kind of with an eye to the outcome. We've got the process going on, but God's going to finish the job. So now may God, may, may he take you all the way to the end goal. And I want you to see that as he describes him as the God of peace, God showed personal interest in starting the process in you, didn't he? The God of peace himself, he himself, God is personally overseeing this process. Why? He's the God of peace. He's got a peace. That's what he calls him. He is peace in himself. He's 
He's whole and entire. There's, there's, you'd say serenity or tranquility in God. He's first Corinthians says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. There's no turmoil in God. There's no contradiction within God. But he also gives peace. And this is a lot of times how we think of peace. In Isaiah, it says, you will give him perfect peace or shalom, shalom. This is the Hebrew word for it. You will give him perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you. God gives peace in the form of himself as our minds are stayed on him. But not only is he peace and he gives peace, but he makes peace, doesn't he? And this is the hope of the gospel. Christ died for sins once for all so that he might bring us to God. God is under no obligation to make peace with rebels. He's the rightful ruler. We're the ones who are disordered and transgressing the righteous, eternal laws of God. But what did he do? At great cost to himself, he sent Jesus, his own son, the Messiah, to die for sinners so that we could be right with him. Paul writes in Colossians 1, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ, and through him, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That's the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God would make peace with sinners through everything of his own doing, not through anything that we have done or deserved. That's the God of peace and mercy, mercy personally condescending to restore his good image in you, to bring you to heaven to be with him. He sacrificed his own son to make you whole again, to give you peace. And he started it at salvation. He's the God, you could say, who makes peace. He is peace, but he makes peace. But he didn't just start the process. God shows personal interest in finishing what he started. This word here, sanctify, is make holy or, or purify. Set you apart from sin to himself, and that word entirely, the, everything coming to its perfect end, the appointed goal, the target, he brings it all there. It's kind of a, you could, you could think of this in the Old Testament when God is giving instructions for the, test, the tabernacle, and there's very, very specific instructions about the anointing oil for the priest and the incense that the priest was going to use. And God gives a very particular recipe. And then he adds these very sober words to it. You shall not use this for a common purpose. No common person shall use it. And you definitely can't replicate it. He doesn't want people in the market going and making this and saying, hey, look, my ad campaign is I've got the holy... Uh, anointing oil from the tabernacle. That makes it common. It makes it something other than what he intended it for. It's reserved exclusively for God's purpose. He's separating the common from the holy. He is, he is setting people apart for himself too. That's what Paul says. God sets people apart for his exclusive use now may the God of self, God of peace himself sanctify you. He puts emphasis there. He actually puts the word there. You all. God's going to do this with his church. 
It's going to set you apart for himself entirely. It's God's intent to have all of you for all of him. Do you understand? God wants every part of you reserved solely for him. That's the goal he's personally working toward in you. Do you know that? Do you want that? So what should you do? Think in the example of Paul, you should pray. Ask God to do this in you. If you turn to John chapter 15, there's a wonderful promise here from the words of, from the mouth of Jesus. Speaking in the upper room before he was crucified to his disciples, teaching them, giving them instruction about how to pray. He gives this illustration of, I am the vine, you are the branches. John chapter 15, verse 4. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So why this illustration? Well, he's drawing attention to a particular thing he wants to see in their lives. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So are you an apple tree? Is that what he's talking about? No, he's talking about spiritual fruit. He's talking about Deeds of Christ's likeness. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, that's how, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. It's a big promise. And he clarifies, my Father is glorified by this. What does God want to do? What will God immediately answer if you ask him because you're full of the word? My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. See, it honors God when you bear spiritual fruit, when you're a healthy tree and you're, you're taking in the water of the word and that's flowing through your veins. It's overtaking your mind and you're actually showing fruit of, wow, okay, that person is acting like Christ in this way. This person is living like Christ this way. He's clearly thinking in a godly way this way. That's that's fruit, but that's not from you. That's from God. It's because you're abiding in the vine and God is doing this. So what does Jesus tell his disciples to do? He says, ask, ask for it. God loves to do this in you. But of course, this implies that you want it that you actually desire for God to have this much of you. What are we talking about? We're talking about absolute lordship here. He's, he's, he's ruling over your thoughts and your, your time and your values and your money, your energy, your family, that, that you really want these things increasingly set aside for God's exclusive use. Do you want that? And that also implies that you're not willing to settle for less. If you're really going to pray for growth with confidence, you're not going to be content with kind of a, a vague sense of spirituality, kind of loosely attaching yourself to the church for the good that it does for your kids or for the community that it gives you or how it helps your marriage. Those are all good things. Those are, those are byproducts. But the person who prays for growth has this single mind to glorify God and to have him rule over your life and to set him apart, to, for him to set you apart for himself. 
But how do we get there? You see that God is intensely interested in, in having you, having me. No doubt you you feel feels almost a little dangerous, doesn't it? Maybe you're not as keen about it as he is. Well, if you see that in yourself, the, the first step is you've got to repent of sin and an unwillingness to let God be Lord of that, whatever it is. Let Christ rule there. God uncovers some unwillingness in your life to grow in some area, to submit to him in some way. Admit it and turn from it, and God will forgive you. He will, he will grant you cleansing. That's certainly the... The, the way of growth that we see patterned in, in the New Testament. Turn from sin, be renewed in your mind, and put on Christ's likeness. That's the first step, is turning from sin. Paul writes in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your, which is your reasonable service or your worship. What do you need to avoid? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is good and excellent, what is the will of God. This is how you worship God, is as you give yourself to him and you're transformed in your thinking. Present your whole self as a holy sacrifice to God. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. The God of peace will finish, he will finish what he set out to do in you. He is peace, he makes peace, he gives peace, he is the definition of holiness, and he knows how to separate a person from sin to himself. You can even say that likeness to him, he himself, is the goal of your growth. He is perfection personified. God will finish the job. He never quits. He never fails. So when you pray, pray with confidence. Pray for growth. It pleases God to give growth so that people know without a doubt that's God's child. But why else should we pray? Why else have such an expectation that God will answer your prayer for spiritual growth? What, what else does God reveal about himself that gives us hope? Second, when you're praying for growth, remember, you're praying to God, the God who really just designed the whole process. The emphasis here in the second half of the verse isn't just on God and the goal, but the, the parts of the process, you could say. The word here, uh, preserved, complete. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved, complete. It's it's every portion of you. God plans to redeem the whole you. Actually, the first word of the phrase, it doesn't really look this way in English, but the first word of the phrase is the word complete. It means entire, being whole in every part of you. Every facet is made whole. I believe that's what Paul is doing when he uses those three words, spirit and soul and body. I don't actually believe, it's kind of a side note, I don't actually believe he's talking about three separate parts of you so much. It seems to be for emphasis, as in you know, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with, you would say, everything you have, all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. It's not even, it's not so much to make these fine 
distinctions, although there is there are ways to love God with different parts of you. Uh, the the word soul, uh, suke, where we where we get psychology, and the word spirit, which is pneuma or wind, they're largely interchangeable in the New Testament. But if there's a distinction, it seems that the spirit is is operating more like the mind, maybe as part of the heart. Scripture is very clear that the heart is where you're. It's the the seat of you. It's the very center of you. It's your mind, your will, and your emotions. And sometimes the New Testament especially uses the word spirit that way. Maybe you could think in terms of the spirit is the thinking part of you and the the soul is the immortal part of you. But he's not so much trying to make a huge distinction. His emphasis here is God intends to reserve for himself every part of you. Material and immaterial, internal and external, mind and will and emotion and action and speech and thought and desire and choice. And that word preserved that he's asking, that's that's the request. It's this idea of keeping and reserving or guarding, watching over it to make sure it arrives safely. It's like raising a child or if you haven't done that, raising a plant or keeping a goldfish alive, who knows? But children, it's a marvel that they live to old age, doesn't it? When you think about this, when you see a child, how did I ever make it to 18? God literally makes them to sample the whole world through their mouths, right? And then they're able to climb things before they can even sense danger. They've got all this capacity and this capability, but none of the discernment to be able to filter. Yeah, that's not a good idea. Okay, You've literally got to watch over them to keep them alive and to get them to their second birthday, it feels like. But God made them resilient, of course. Parents watch over children to see to it that they're they're safe and healthy physically, emotionally, intellectually. You're, you're looking over all of these parts of their lives, trying to make them arrive. You, know, you give them a good family, good education, healthy relationships, good nutrition, every single thing. The parent watches over because the, the, the kid can't do it for himself. And the people who think they can of course, for us, this doesn't mean that God gets rid of every negative influence in our lives, right? Well, I'm not going to send that kid to that sleepover because he's, he's, a, he's a worldly kid or whatever. God doesn't get rid of every negative influence. You think of suffering, you think of persecution. God brings us to those things, but that's not a failure in watching over us. But this word here, preserve, does indicate that what God created as good that was marred by sin, he intends to reclaim and restore into his good image. You are created in God's image, and he wants to bring you to glory and make everything right in you. He's committed to that. He's going to get it back. Put it into the likeness of Christ, all of it. So what, what, what am I talking about? Well, God intends to fix your tongue. Maybe you think, okay, I had COVID and I haven't been able to taste anything for three years, and I'm sorry. I had that for a little bit. And I've got to imagine that all of our taste buds are going to be back when we're in heaven. And God's going to fix that. But I'm not just talking about physically, although that's true. Spiritually, what, is, what does Scripture say about our tongue? It's a little member, but it has great influence. And no one is faultless here. 
including me. God's going to fix that. What does James say? Can, can good and bad water come from the same fountain? Can we actually bless and curse from the same mouth? Well, frighteningly, yes, we can, we do. But God's going to fix that. God's going to fix that. God intends to reclaim that part of you for himself. That's part of redeeming the whole you. God intends to fix your eyes. Maybe you wear glasses. And yeah, I can't wait till I get to heaven so I can have new eyes. I don't know if there's going to be uh, eye doctors in heaven. I, I mean, practicing their craft. I'm sure there will be eye doctors. Glasses. But spiritually, what does the, the psalmist pray? Don't let me look on vanity. Do you look on worthless things? Do you work, look on sinful things? God wants that part of you back. God's going to redeem that. That's part of what he wants to fix. Maybe those are external things as we think about them. Think in terms of values. God intends to fix your values and make them more like his own. Maybe, maybe they're disordered in some way in your life. God wants to give you right priorities. This is part of how he's forming Christ in you. He's fixing these things. He's restoring them. There is no part of you that God intends to leave unrestored. So when you seek him about growth, when you ask him, you should take hope that his scope for you is wide. Does God care about this in my life? Yes, probably he does. He wants that. But what does it look like to be to be kept or reserved, complete in every part? Not only does God plan to redeem the whole you, but in the rest of the verse, God intends for you to meet Christ spotless. He describes what he means about being preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blameless, unable to find fault with a spotless character. It's very similar in idea and even in word to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1. Why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 5? I'll read from Ephesians chapter 1. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. But what is God doing about this? What does Christ do about this to those he redeems? Ephesians 5. You can look in verse 25. This is addressed to husbands and wives, loving and submitting. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. You see it on the wedding day. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This is, this is the wedding day. When the church, when God's people meet Jesus Christ, it's the day the bride has been waiting for, saving herself for, preparing herself for. Her most beautiful day, she's presented to her husband spotless, forsaking all others, reserved for him alone as long of the, as the two of them shall live. That's the picture here. But the puzzling thing to us about this is that we know we're not spotless. I can't anymore. I, I can't be that ready for that day. I've sinned. 
How can I be blameless and spotless and faultless and untouched by sin and other relationships that I've had when I meet Christ when I've already blown it and I've blown it repeatedly? What's the answer? By the mighty and cleansing and redeeming power of God, isn't it? Yes, we've blown it, but you're sanctified. You're justified. Yes, you've been unfaithful. Yes, we're tainted by sin, but in Christ, you are washed. You're cleansed. You're sanctified. You're set apart. You're justified. You're declared right. Where you had transgressed, you're forgiven. Where you're filthy, you're cleansed. And where God's image in you has been so disfigured by your sin, you're mended. You're healed. You're restored. That's the grace of God to unworthy sinners. This is, this is the glory of God to redeem his people, his, his creatures. Do you want that? God will make you whole. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come and be made well. And what you'll find as you do this, is that God sets you on a course of repenting from sin and turning from unrighteousness and turning to deeds of righteousness. And you'll you'll feel like you're living a new life. You'll sing like David did. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You're just a happy sheep. Glad that God's your shepherd. the most glorious cleansing that you could ever know that God intends to present you to Christ spotless. But this isn't a process of cleansing we can do on our own. We can't go and wash our sin away. You can't do enough good deeds to make yourself more worthy in fact or feel more worthy after the sin you've committed. You can't punish yourself enough You can't make God love you more by obeying him more. This is not how you fix your sin problem. You cast yourself on the mercy of God and ask that he would work in you. Even if you're a Christian, this is what you do. And you have this hope as you obey God. What did Paul write? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will, to desire, and to do of his good pleasure. I hope you see how it really should give you great confidence in prayer to know that the growth that God started in you at salvation, he will see through to the end. But along the way, just remember that he designed the process. He designed the very process he has you in. He knows. He knows what he's doing. So pray for that reason too. God, I don't understand why you're bringing me through this. I don't understand the the difficulty of this. Will you help me understand? Will you complete your work? I trust you. There's a third and final reason to take hope in prayer because when you're praying for growth, you're praying to the God whose heart is for your holiness. We've kind of seen this all along, but I think it becomes crystal clear in verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you, he also will bring it to pass. God's intent to receive glory from all men 
should give you confidence if you want to grow strong in the Lord and stable in faith first, because it's it's really God's glory to act according to his nature. God loves to do what he has always done towards people. He's faithful and true to his word. Faithful is he who calls you. You know, maybe you've heard people say God can do anything. Maybe you've even said it. I know I've said it. It was probably a little bit more of a precisely biblical statement to say that God can do anything that's consistent with his nature, right? There have been some people in the world who, in pride or foolishness or whatever, have asked can, things like, can, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? Okay, it's a foolish question. But maybe more pertinent is, can God sin? God can do anything. Can God sin? God always acts according to his nature. This is part of his faithfulness. He never changes. Part of the perfection of God, the glory of God, is that he never deviates from who he really is. There's no shadow in him. You're never going to find anything that, that, that is dark. Certainly there are things about God that we don't know because he hasn't revealed them. But here, the one who calls you is faithful. He's reliable. He's truthful. He's trustworthy. He does what he says. You can count on him. And what he calls you to, he won't abandon it. He won't turn from it. He won't change his mind. It's like a, a compass that you know is always going to point to true north. God is always aimed at holiness for you. It's God's nature to be trustworthy. So when his word tells you that his plan for you is to sin less and to act more like Jesus by his grace, you can believe it and you can rely on it and you can pray for it. It's his will for you. Maybe you've asked, what's God's will for my life? What does Paul say in just the previous chapter? This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. There are many competing visions for what your life should look like. Maybe you even have a couple in your own mind of what you want to look like, and you can't decide. But certainly there are, there are visions that people in the world want you to say, live this way. This is the good life. This is This is... You know, they wouldn't say it this way, but this is God's will for you. Go pursue that. And sometimes we have these competing visions of what we should do. But this one's actually written down. It's God's authoritative revelation about what he wants for your life. It's not written in chapter and verse what your career should be, who your spouse should be, what house you should buy. But God has said his will is your sanctification. You take him at his word? Is this what you desire? Because he will keep his word. It's his nature to do that. But second, it's God's glory to work in this way towards all of his people. Faithful is he who calls you. We read this and think me. The person standing up in front of the church reading the letter says, faithful is he who calls you, all of you, all of us. This is how God works toward all his people. Earlier, if you turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul refers to walking worthy of God's calling. 1 Thessalonians 2.12. The reason he was ministering in a certain way, pleading with them, encouraging them, was so that you would walk or live in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. 
kind of read over that word calls so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Same word here in First Thessalonians 5. Faithful is he who calls you. Of course, there's the external call of the gospel delivered by the, the, the human, the, the preacher, the person who says believe in the gospel. That's the external call that God instructs us to give. We, we really have to beckon everybody because God calls through us to all men. This is why we have to preach the gospel to all the nations. No one is exempt. No one should go their lives without hearing the external call to respond to the gospel, but only God can call a person what we would say is effectually or savingly. Only God can call from salvation. And think of it this way. Only Jesus, as God, could go up to that tomb of Lazarus and call, that's the word, Lazarus, come forth. If you did that, your voice would bounce back in your face off the rock, and you'd get laughed at. But God could do that, and only God can do that. And like Lazarus, only God could call him from the grave. Only God can call sinners from spiritual death into spiritual life. It's a call really from one kingdom to another, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's a, it's a high calling. It's a heavenly calling. God gives this, you can think of it this way, an authoritative summons to live when previously we were dead, to see where previously we were blind, a call that we can't control, we can't manufacture. We can't produce on our own. But these two things are related, the, the internal call and the external call, because God ordinarily calls sinners powerfully and authoritatively to new life in Christ through the external preaching of the gospel. How will they hear unless someone tells them? God uses the foolishness of preaching to call men to believe the gospel. This is God's glory to do this. He uses men who cannot do anything but obey to do what only he can do. He does a spiritual work. So if you're a Christian, God did this. He, he called you out of darkness into light. He summoned you from the grave. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God in his mercy made you alive. But it's not just to spiritual life that he calls us. It's actually to holy living. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. If you want to turn there, you can. 1 Peter 1, verse 5. Excuse me, verse 15. gives this exhortation, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Here you see kind of just the very foundational version of God wants to make people like himself. Be holy for I am holy. The one who called you is holy, so be holy in your behavior. God calls you with a holy calling. So he calls you to holiness. That is 
to be increasingly separate from sin in your in your motives for serving, in your responses towards people who hurt you, in your thoughts about the future, and on and on. God wants those aspects of your life for himself, like himself. That's why he saved you. But finally, it's God's glory, not just to act according to his nature, not just to work this way towards all people, to call them with a holy calling, but it's God's glory when, I think finally you could say, his people imitate his heart. In verse 25, I believe there's an indication that we should pray for this, not just for ourselves, but for other people. How does Paul close? Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. This is your confidence. God will do it. He will finish the job, brethren. Don't just pray this for you. Pray it for us. You may have in your margin. Pray it for us also. Whether or not it was right to have it in there. See, there are two early manuscripts add that word. I think that's a right understanding of what Paul is saying. Someone was reading this and thinking, yeah, Paul needs this prayed for him too. Pray for us also. God wants you to pray for your holiness and for other people's holiness. Pastors and teachers, we're not exempt from this. We have the same source who is that source? Where must our confidence lie for growth? It's in God. And what does hope, confidence look like? It looks like prayer. So pray, even for your pastor, your pastors, other teachers and leaders. No one is exempt from this. Pray for one another that we would be growing to be more like Jesus Christ. And then look for his answer. Look for his answer. Expect that he will give growth. Why? Paul does say, pray for us. He commands it. But also realize that when you're praying, you're praying with a heart like God's. This is what God wants. God is thrilled when his children love one another in this way. It magnifies him. It honors him. It, it, you could say it thrills the heart of God when his children pray for their brothers and sisters to be growing in likeness to Jesus Christ. So I would ask you once more, where is your confidence today? Where is your confidence for growth? Do you see yourself maybe being good enough already? You've arrived where God wants you to be. You don't really need any more progress before you get to heaven. You're, you're pretty okay. You're pretty satisfied with where you're at. Well, maybe that's the case. Maybe you need to be saved because you might be depending on your own righteousness. You might be self-righteous. Only God can make you perfectly righteous, and he does it through Jesus alone. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. That's not you. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is only possible because Christ came the first time and died for sinners. Faithful is he who calls you. He did that because of Christ, and he also will bring to pass. That's his determination, not yours. So are you self-confident? Turn to God. But maybe you don't have any confidence. Maybe your confidence is shattered. You just feel like you can't grow. You've, you've returned to this sin repeatedly. You just feel like giving up. You feel like your wheels are spinning in the mud. You're digging ever deeper into the rut of sin. You can't get past, and you just don't have very much confidence at all. Not even in God.
God's word points you somewhere, doesn't it? Points you up. This is where your confidence must lie. As I thought about this, I thought uh, of a time a couple of years ago when we were over at my brother's house. And if you've been to his house, he's got this big plot of land out behind him and it was kind of overgrown and it was just a big kind of a project that we were doing with him. We were going to clear it. We were going to, we're, you know, we're homesteading. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're we're going to clear it and it's a big, beautiful backyard. And uh, he had rented a, a bobcat or something, not with the tracks. It had the big, big wheels, which of course the little boys loved. But I think it was like a wet day and it had rained and the ground was a little soft or it didn't drain well or something. And we were picking up sticks and running the uh, big uh, weed brush, brush eater around and things. We were going to move this big pile of sticks to the back line, property line. We were going to use the bobcat to do it. And we tried it. And as Danny was going up the incline, the wheels just kind of sunk down and he made it up maybe once, twice, I don't remember, but then he got stuck and all of our progress kind of halted. I think my brother-in-law was happily riding around the brush eater the rest of the day, but all of us went over and we were just chucking boards and logs and anything we could onto these tires. You remember this? And trying to get this thing unstuck, trying to get traction. And all we were doing was digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And it might not have been so bad if it would have been Daniel's Bobcat. I would have been happy to leave, but we rented it. So we had to get it out and we're working and we're working and it's very frustrating. And then finally, as I remember it, my dad stopped and he was like, have any, has any of us prayed about this yet? We're like, okay. Yeah. I think all of us were a little convicted that probably we hadn't, but we prayed. And as I remember it, I don't remember the exact timing of everything. It was after that we, we got the boards just right or whatever. And God helped us get it out of there. Maybe you feel like that. What are you going to do? Are you just going to keep spinning your wheels? Or are you going to look up? Don't place your confidence for change in the wrong place. You'll find power for change only really first in, in new life in Christ when you're dead to sin and alive to God, but then in an ongoing way, only by the grace that God gives you to change. God and God alone is the source of spiritual growth. So pray for it confidently. And look, in closing, notice the, the final recommendation Paul gives here, the final commendation as he closes his letter. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with you. This is, this is the last thought that he wants this church to have in their minds about how to endure in their faith by growing strong. God's grace is with you. God's favor is toward you. He is gracious. So may God's grace be with you and with us as we seek him for the growth that he wants to accomplish in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we've sung of your holiness today, and it is a marvel that you intend to form that in us, even as Jesus himself was holy and the perfect representation of you, Father. You want to make us like that. Too often in the, the stuff of life, we get our eyes off of what your goal for us is, but I pray that you would fix our gaze on Christ 
get us back into the word. And then Lord, as you show us ways that we need to grow, I pray that you would lay it on our hearts to pray and to pray with faith and with hope, knowing that you intend to do this. This is the whole purpose of our salvation so that we would be your holy chosen people, zealous for good deeds so that people would see our good works and glorify you, our Father in heaven. This isn't just a a self-help program. This isn't just to better our lives. This is the kind of blessing and worship that you intend for us to live our whole lives by. Help us to do it. Give us faith. Help us to believe what your word says and to trust that you are the God of faith, the God of peace, that you are faithful to your word. You will finish the work. Give us confidence in you, the kind of confidence that you want us to have so that we may grow strong in the faith. Bless us, Lord. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.